Thank you. Sorry we're late. We had to vote. So we, uh, my opening remarks would be very quick. Um, I have been working with Senator Coons and many others, and uh, Senator Kane is a lot of interest in this. Uh, from an American point of view, uh, our policies in Africa, uh, we need to up our game, and it's a wonderful opportunity for the United States to be a better partner with the continent of Africa. A lot of opportunities, a lot of challenges. This is where the war against radical Islam is going to go as you make it harder for them to reside in the Mideast. And um, I just cannot tell you how much I enjoy visiting the continent. And each of you in your own way will be our voice. And I just hope you will uh, understand that from an American point of view, the 21st century, the big prize is trying to have a better relationship with Africa before the Chinese take the place over. Senator Kane. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, uh, and it is good to be with each of you. Congratulations on your nominations. This is uh, my first time in the Senate where I'm serving on the Africa Subcommittee, and I'm really looking forward to learning from my colleagues and learning from you. Uh, to Ambassador Leonard, Mr. Bell, and Ms. Le Pen, you've all recently left leadership positions in Africa to come here. Your careers in representing our country all over the world are very long and very impressive, and I'm very appreciative of the opportunity and the experience that each of you bring from your service on the continent. As Ambassador Leonard served as our representative of the African Union in Addis Ababa, and previously as Ambassador to Mali, as well as service in South Africa, Togo, Namibia, Cameroon. Uh, Mr. Bell was charge d'affaires in N'Djamena, in, in Chad, also having served in Niger, Ethiopia, Madagascar, and then at AFRICOM. Ms. Le Pen, charge d'affaires in Pretoria, having also served in Rwanda, and this in addition to many other positions, and I want to acknowledge Ms. Le Pen, uh, you are a Pearson, former Pearson Fellow on Capitol Hill with this committee, and I have a Pearson Fellow, Mimi Esnes, behind me, and today is her last day before she goes back to the State Department, and it's a wonderful program, and the State Department folks who are loaned as Pearson Fellows to the Hill, we, we couldn't get our work done without them. Uh, to Ms. Beckering, you are, you've been doing the job for which you have been nominated in an acting capacity, and we thank you for your service both to this administration and also to the uh, uh, administration of President George W. Bush. Look forward to sharing your insider's perspective on USAID operation and funding. And then finally, Ms. Marks, we look forward to hearing about your unique background and experience and your thoughts on the U.S. relationship, the important U.S. relationship with South Africa. Uh, many challenges. Senator Graham addressed a few. I've heard him uh, talk in the past and share his concern about instability in the Sahel and how that could pose a threat to the relative stability, good governance, and economic revival in Cote d'Ivoire. The African Union is an important body managing significant uh, crises, numerous crises and conflicts affecting its members, and we need to figure out the right way to strategize to work in partnership going forward. I think this is going to be a, a good hearing. I, again, congratulate each of you on your nomination. And, Look forward to uh, hearing your opening statements and moving to questions. Thank you. That was a good overview. So, um, we swear them in? Okay, you don't have to get sworn in, but don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ms. Marks, go ahead. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee, 
I'm honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of South Africa. I am thankful to the President and to Secretary Pompeo for the confidence and trust they've placed in me through my nomination to this very important role. My family is here with me today, and I would like to thank my husband, Dr. Neville Marks, who has stood by my side for 43 years of marriage. My son, Martin Marks for his tireless support throughout this process, and my amazing daughter, Tiffany Marks, my son-in-law, Simon, and my grandchildren, Asher, Skyler, and Mia. I am blessed in my family. For many reasons, we represent the American dream, one that has been achieved through hard work, determination, and perseverance. My father was a good and fair man. He escaped the anti-Semitism of Lithuania in the 1930s and immigrated to South Africa, where he worked his way through university, earned a degree in engineering, and then went into real estate development. When the apartheid laws came into effect, he realized that the values of his adopted country did not match the values he held dear. I married my husband when I was 22 years old and we moved to Bermuda, where he established himself as a psychiatrist. When my husband was offered a professorship in America, we decided to leave everything behind for our new home. We settled in Miami, where I started a small artisanal handbag business from the kitchen table of our two-bedroom apartment. In the last 15 years, I visited 110 countries as I grew that business into a global brand. I'm honored to have served as a member of Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government's Women's Leadership Board. As a distinguished speaker for Georgetown University Women's Leadership Initiative and to have represented the United States in Helsinki, Finland for the Women Business Leaders Summit. In 1994, I became an American citizen. By coincidence, this was also the year that Nelson Mandela became president of South Africa. In just 25 years, the country of my birth has undergone a miraculous transformation through its peaceful transition away from the brutal apartheid regime that now stands as a pillar of democracy. It fills me with great personal pride to witness the legacy of Nelson Mandela in this remarkable evolution of South Africa. South Africa has joined the ranks of the G20 group of the world's most important economies, and it currently sits on the United Nations Security Council as an elected member. It has not only become an engine of economic growth for Africa and beyond, but also leads by example in the region, including by contributing over 1,000 troops to peacekeeping operations in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. If confirmed, my top priority would undoubtedly be the safety and security of all Americans in South Africa, a priority enunciated by Secretary Pompeo. I would also work to further cultivate the already robust relationship the United States enjoys with South Africa, deepening both our government dialogue and our important trade and investment ties. South Africa is our most developed trading partner in sub-Saharan Africa. American firms contribute about 10% of South Africa's GDP, and I will work tirelessly to expand markets in South Africa for American businesses. The ongoing battle against HIV and AIDS, which affects more than 7.5 million South Africans, is one that we can win. Since 2004, Congress has appropriated more than $6 million in funding through the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, just in South Africa. We should use the momentum of this generous funding and continue bipartisan support to put an end to the scourge of HIV and AIDS and to reach epidemic control by 2020. 
the issues of women's and youth empowerment, entrepreneurship, and economic opportunities are ones that I personally hold dear. The future of South Africa can be seen in the faces of its young citizens, and I will work tirelessly if confirmed to ensure that the prospects every person deserves should not be out of reach for any South African. I've witnessed both the struggles and the triumphs of the land that Archbishop Desmond Tutu called the Rainbow Nation. After centuries of hardship and colonialism, South Africa has embraced democratic ideals and serves as a beacon of hope for the rest of Africa. It is further heartening to see the recent election of President Ramaphosa. In this renewed era of democracy, we must reinforce that we are true partners on the road ahead. There are deep, long-standing and genuine ties of affection that bind Americans and South Africans. If confirmed, I would be deeply honored to use my knowledge and skills to strengthen these ties. Thank you for the honor and privilege of allowing me to appear before the committee today. I welcome your questions. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Kane, distinguished members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today. I am honored to be the President's nominee for the position of U.S. Ambassador to the African Union and Representative to the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. I'm grateful for the trust and confidence the President and Secretary Pompeo have placed in me. If confirmed, I pledge to work with you to advance our nation's interests at these institutions. My parents, Joyce and Jim Le Pen, um, are with me today, as they have been every step of my almost 25 years in the Foreign Service. In country after country, they have visited me, um, often volunteering in local organizations, helping me more fully reflect American values of service, of generosity, and partnership. I'm not joined today by my 10-year-old son, Jasper, um, though he has fully shared in my Foreign Service life. He was born in Jerusalem and has spent almost half his life on the African continent. Um, he's not here because he's reconnecting to American life at summer camp in New Hampshire. Um, I entered the Foreign Service for both the foreign and the service. I was attracted by the prospects of foreign experiences and by the opportunities for meaningful service. And I have found both in equal measure. Across my posts, I've had the privilege to represent, to advance vital American security, political, and economic interests. From Jerusalem to Johannesburg, I've strived to do so in a way that communicated shared American values and in service to the American people. If confirmed by this body, my tenure in Addis would be defined and shaped by those experiences. The African Union is a unique and influential forum. It brings together 55 member states to discuss and take action on the continent's foremost issues and to formulate and establish standards by which all members can hold each other accountable. It's a forum where our voice needs to be heard. If confirmed, I'd focus on three key priorities, expanding trade and investment, advancing peace and security, and supporting democracy, human rights, and good governance across the continent. Africa is in part defined by its youthful population. Economic transformation is essential to ensure that this is an asset, not a vulnerability. The private sector can generate the jobs that young Africans need and want. By helping American business and investment succeed in Africa, we can foster prosperity on the continent as well as here at home. From the passage by this body of the BUILD Act to the recent rollout of Prosper Africa, the United States has expanded its toolkit for economic engagement. We've done so in stark contrast to the more predatory debt diplomacy of others. 
The recent establishment of the African Continental Free Trade Area, or AFCFTA, represents an exciting opportunity for African governments to reduce trade barriers and increase trade and investment. The AU will be at the center of its implementation. If confirmed, I'll focus on creating opportunities for U.S. business and expanding U.S.-Africa trade and investment. My second priority, if confirmed, will be advancing peace and security. Fragility, ongoing conflicts, threaten global and national security. The African Union has made significant strides to prevent, respond to, and resolve armed conflict and counter transnational threats. Over the past decade plus, the AU, subregional organizations, and member states have played a key role as first responders to regional conflicts. And we have been with them throughout. If confirmed, I'll continue building and integrating the AU's counterterrorism and conflict prevention capabilities. Finally, if confirmed, I'll work with the AU to encourage democracy and good governance practices, which are so critical <clears throat> for peace, security, and sustained economic growth. Our shared commitment to democratic principles, including open and accountable governance, credible elections, peaceful transitions of power, and respect for human rights and the rule of law, these are the very foundation of the US-AU relationship. The outstanding USAU team has been dedicated to partnering with the African Union and its member states to ensure a secure and prosperous future and to deepening US-Africa ties. If confirmed, I look forward to leading their efforts. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Kane, members of the committee, thank you again for this opportunity. I look forward to your questions. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored and humbled to appear before you today, and I'm grateful to the President and Secretary Pompeo for the confidence they've placed in me as their nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Côte d'Ivoire. If confirmed, I will dedicate myself to furthering this important bilateral relationship and advancing America's interests in Côte d'Ivoire. I would like to thank my parents, Bill and Kathy Bell, who gave my brothers and me an enriching upbringing on three continents, an unwavering example of integrity, humility, and grace, and a love for our country that our international experiences only serve to strengthen. My brothers Mark and Paul have been inspiring me for decades. I'm the proud father of Annis and Will, and so grateful to their mother, Vicky, without whom I probably never would have joined the Foreign Service. I would like to say a special thanks to Ambassador Don Yamamoto, currently our ambassador in Somalia. When he was running the Africa Bureau, he really went above and beyond advocating for an ambassadorship for me. I'd also like to note the presence of Ms. Hannah Eagleton, the desk officer for Côte d'Ivoire, who's done such a fine job preparing me for this hearing. In my 28 years as a Foreign Service officer, I've had the privilege of serving on or near four continents, including three full tours in Africa, Madagascar, Ethiopia, and Niger, where I was chargé d'affaires for a year. Since September, I've been serving as the chargé d'affaires in Chad. Côte d'Ivoire has seen immense success since 2011 after emerging from civil conflict and is once again an engine of growth in West Africa. The country went from negative growth and stagnation during a decade-long conflict to real GDP growth of 7 to 9% annually since 2012. Côte d'Ivoire is the world's largest exporter of cocoa beans and raw cashews and one of the best-performing economies in the world. The U.S. government is supporting the Ivoirians in this growth. In 2017, a $525 million Millennium Challenge Corporation compact was signed to support the country's education and transportation sectors. 
In addition, in December 2018, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross and the Foreign Minister of Cote d'Ivoire signed a Memorandum of Understanding which aims to help U.S. companies increase investment in Cote d'Ivoire. And Cote d'Ivoire will host the 2019 African Growth and Opportunity Act annual forum in Abidjan next month. Cote d'Ivoire is the United States' largest Francophone Africa trading partner. And the United States imports 15% of Cote d'Ivoire's cocoa. Almost every M&M and Snickers bar that Mars sells here in the United States contains Ivoirian cocoa. I'm aware of concerns about child labor in the cocoa sector and know that the embassy is working closely with the Ivoirian government, NGOs, and the chocolate industry to address these concerns. Much of our engagement with Cote d'Ivoire addresses factors that can contribute to child labor. We are thus active in supporting women's economic empowerment, improving access to education, and improving health services. Our efforts to increase law enforcement capacity will help Cote d'Ivoire deal with those who use child labor and exploit children in forced labor. Cote d'Ivoire aims to become an emerging economy by 2020, but to meet this goal, the country must sustain its impressive economic growth, distribute benefits more broadly, improve government services, strengthen democratic institutions, improve security sector governance, and conduct free and credible elections in 2020. A strong democracy, political inclusiveness, and reconciliation will be necessary to solidify Cote d'Ivoire's economic success and ensure the country does not fall back into civil conflict. If confirmed, I will work with the government of Cote d'Ivoire to strengthen governance, enhance transparency, and become increasingly responsive to citizen needs. I will also support democratic institutions and advocate for 2020 presidential elections that are free, fair, and thus credibly reflect the will of the Ivoirian people. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee for this opportunity to appear before you. The Ivoirian people, from the president and his government to the humblest cocoa farmers, are friends of America. If confirmed, I will strive to keep it that way, to reinforce our interests in a stable, prosperous, and peaceful Cote d'Ivoire. I warmly welcome any questions. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee, I am so deeply honored to appear before you today as the nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Nigeria. I would like to thank my family who are with me through the miracle of live streaming, and I would also like to thank some Foreign Service family who are here today, including among my most cherished mentors, uh, Ambassador Johnny Young and Terry McCulley, um, who is a distinguished past ambassador in both Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire. I am grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for the trust and confidence they have shown in nominating me for this position. If confirmed, I will strive to marshal the experiences from over two decades of African postings in a 31-year Foreign Service career, including two tours as Chief of Mission. As U.S. Ambassador in Mali, I addressed converging issues of governance and security. In my current assignment as Ambassador to the African Union, I have regularly witnessed Nigeria's diplomatic heft and agility, as well as regional coordination to address its security challenges. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with members of the committee and your staffs to promote and protect U.S. interests with Nigeria. Nigeria is a country of many paradoxes. Its vast oil revenues help fuel a huge economy, yet corruption and failures of governance have blocked meaningful health services, educational opportunities, and prosperity for too many of its citizens. Serious security challenges stand in counterpoint to vibrant entrepreneurs and cultural achievements. The challenge for the U.S. relationship with this strategically important partner is how Nigeria can successfully validate its inestimable promise for peace and prosperity for its citizens and the broader region. 
President Buhari shares our priorities of expanding economic growth, increasing security, and countering corruption. If confirmed, I will be committed to harnessing U.S. diplomacy, foreign assistance, and the ingenuity and appeal of the U.S. private sector to partner with Nigeria toward these goals. Nigeria is our second largest trading partner on the continent with over $8 billion in two-way trade. In President Trump's April 2018 meeting with President Buhari at the White House, the first African head of state to be welcomed there, uh, he emphasized the potential for expanded U.S.-Nigerian trade. That's why the U.S. government welcomes Nigeria's recent decision to sign on to the African Continental Free Trade Area. As I've stated often in my role as ambassador to the AU, by opening African markets and lowering barriers to trade and investment, this agreement can pave the way for increased U.S.-Africa trade. If confirmed, I would look to harness U.S. tools ranging from the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act to the coming Development Finance Corporation's increased budget for insurance, loans and loan guarantees, and equity investments to promote our mutual prosperity. Nigerians in nearly all of the country's 36 states are plagued by insecurity, from terrorism in the Northeast to militant attacks and maritime primacy in the South to intercommunal violence, kidnapping, and crime across the country. Vice President Pence and Nigerian Vice President Osimbajo discussed these security challenges as, ways to as well as ways to better protect citizens during their June 26 White House meeting. If confirmed, I will keep firmly in mind our long-term goal of a more operationally capable and professional military and police services that respect human rights, protect civilians, and hold those responsible for abuses and violations to account as only such forces can truly deliver security to the people of Nigeria. Escalating intercommunal conflict is frequently based in resource competition, but inflamed by conflation of ethnic and religious overlays. If confirmed, I will work to ensure the US government helps Nigeria address these conflicts root causes, enhance the security and justice sector response, and support Nigerian interfaith efforts. Nigeria needs to build trust between the government and its people to succeed in fulfilling its great promise and to strengthen its democracy. A large share of our roughly $500 million annual bilateral assistance portfolio targets Nigerian human capital to create a more productive and stable African partner. Nigeria's 2015 elections contributed to positive democratic trends in much of West Africa, and despite some flaws, the 2019 elections demonstrated Nigeria's commitment to improving its democracy. If confirmed, as Nigeria passes the 20-year mark of a return to democratic rule, I will ensure the United States continues to be a stalwart partner of the Nigerian people as they work to solidify their country's place as a democratic leader in Africa. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee, I would be honored to be confirmed to the privilege of directing the U.S. relationship with Nigeria. I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you, and I look forward to your questions. Senator Graham, Ranking Member Kane, distinguished members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee for Assistant Administrator for Economic Growth, Education, and Environment at the U.S. Agency for International Development. I would like to start by thanking President Trump and Administrator Mark Green for their support and confidence in my ability to serve in this role. I would also like to thank E3's acting Assistant Administrator Kerry Thompson and the entire E3 management team for their outstanding leadership. I'm pleased to be joined here today by my friends and colleagues who took the time to come and cheer me on. 
I want to especially note Eddie Acevedo, Casey Redman, Catrice Dorsey, Elizabeth Montgomery, and Ronta Russell, who have shepherded me throughout this nomination process. I also want to recognize my parents, family, and friends back home in Iowa who are here with me in spirit and watching this via video stream. And most importantly, I would like to thank my husband, Mark, and our four-year-old daughter, Hadley, who are here with me today. This moment was made possible because of your love, encouragement, and support, and for that, I thank you. My career path has uniquely prepared me for this position. I have had the pleasure of serving at USAID for the past two years, and I share Administrator Green's mission and vision for international development and the values this agency holds dear. Prior to joining USAID, I spent 12 years at the International Republican Institute, or IRI, which is an international democracy development organization dedicated to promoting democracy and freedom across the world. I carried out assignments in both Washington as well as in the field, which provided me with a greater appreciation and understanding of how to work with our partners to foster locally-led development and achieve sustainable impact in our shared development goals. If confirmed, I will also bring my previous U.S. government experience to this position. I spent several years working in the House of Representatives, and during the Bush administration, I worked in the European and Eurasian Affairs Directorate of the National Security Council. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with Congress to advance our shared priorities in a bipartisan manner. This professional experience will serve me well if I'm confirmed as Assistant Administrator for E3. The E3 Bureau is a complex portfolio of offices that cut across all aspects of our development work to tackle the key challenges that inhibit a country's ability to meet its development goals. We do this by providing technical leadership, research, and field support to our regional missions across the world. If confirmed, I will focus on the following priority areas. Economic growth and trade. We will continue to help our partner countries catalyze and sustain growth while building their capacity to mobilize and manage domestic resources in an effective, transparent, and accountable manner that benefits all citizens. We will continue to work with our partner governments to ensure that their trade and regulatory regimes are efficient and transparent in order to level the playing field and promote the access of U.S. business interests to markets overseas. We will continue to support energy programs that help our partner countries transition to a more secure, reliable, affordable, and sustainable sector. Finally, we are committed to working hand-in-hand -hand with the private sector to design and deliver our development and humanitarian programs in all areas. Education. We will continue working towards the goals outlined in the U.S. Government Strategy on International Basic Education as mandated by the READ Act of 2017. The goal of the strategy in our new education policy is to achieve a world in which educational institutions enable all individuals to acquire the education and skills necessary to be productive members of society, with a particular focus on the most marginalized and vulnerable populations. Environment and natural resources. We will continue to invest in the conservation of our natural resources while simultaneously tackling environmental crimes, including wildlife trafficking, illegal fishing, and illegal logging. We will also continue our quest to reduce ocean plastics pollution by working with our local partners to stop waste from entering the oceans while improving recycling and the proper collection of waste. Finally, we recognize that changes in climate pose new challenges for development, and we will continue to assist our partner countries' capacity to anticipate and withstand extremes which can reduce the need for costly humanitarian response. And finally, and maybe most importantly, we recognize that promoting the equality and empowerment of women and girls is not simply a part of development, but it is the core of all of our development work. 
To that end, we will continue our commitment to supporting women and girls by integrating gender equality and women's empowerment across every sector of our work. As you are aware, through the USAID transformation, the E3 Bureau will change, change structurally, but the new successor Bureau, the Bureau for Development, Democracy, and Innovation, will continue E3's focus on technical leadership. If confirmed, I look forward to implementing, implementing Administrator Green's vision for a transformed USAID. Senator Graham, Ranking Member Kane, distinguished members of the committee, as you can see, the leadership of E3 Bureau is critical to our development goals at USAID. It is therefore my honor to be here today as the administration's nominee for the position of Assistant Administrator of E3. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly on behalf of the American people to carry out USAID's mission to promote and demonstrate our democratic values abroad while advancing a free, prosperous, and peaceful world. Thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions. Well, thank you all. Congratulations to you and your family members. This is a big day in your life, and I think you've earned this honor. Very impressive group of people. So you have a job to do in Africa. Here's my question. If we reduced the developmental aid budget by 22 to 24%, Ms. Pickering, does that help your job or does it hurt it? Well, thank you, Senator Graham, for your continued support of USAID funding. And I know, as Administrator Green has told, Green has told you before, there's probably never going to be enough resources to meet all the development challenges we are facing. Are we such that it's a good time to cut funding? We will continue to program efficiently and effectively the dollars you are so generously providing to us. Yeah, I just think it's nuts to do that. So, uh, Ms. Leonard, 90% of um, the revenue for, for Nigeria is in the oil economy, right? Yes. I mean, it's their country to run, but part of what she wants to do is try to diversify economies. Do you think it'd be a good place to start as Nigeria? Absolutely, and I think that um, uh, you know the, the the government of Nigeria is overwhelmingly uh, dependent, as you mentioned, on oil revenues. But there is also, and, and the U.S. mission also supports um, efforts to diversify the economy, and uh, including through agriculture, which is the occupation of many Nigerians. I think an interesting uh, new wrinkle in this is is, as I mentioned in my remarks, uh, Nigeria's adherence to the African Continental Free Trade Area. Uh, Nigeria has often taken a rather protectionist view. Uh, can, can you do me a favor and mm -hmm. report back to the committee in six months your efforts to help Nigeria diversify their economy? Uh, if I am confirmed, I would be delighted to be yeah. back to you in six months. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, assuming you get the job. If not, do it anyway. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Bell, just got back from Cote d'Ivoire with uh, Senator Coons on, on a trip. Beautiful place. Um, one of the things that we're talking about is there's a coastal road being envisioned in West Africa that could actually connect up to some of the countries of the Sahel. Are you familiar with this project? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I am aware of uh, interest in a road across uh, the uh, coastal part of West Africa and of the uh, MCC. Uh, compact, so here's what I want you to do. Okay. I want you to make this like a big priority because I want us to do this, not the Chinese. I think it will transform that part of Western Africa. And there is really no port for the Sahal unless it's Cote d'Ivoire. So I think this committee is very interested in that project. Uh, Ms. Le Pen, what is the Trump administration's policy toward Africa? 
Thank you, Senator. Um, the, the priorities that I laid out are fully consistent with the administration's agenda. It's a focus on, on opening up politically, on, as you just talked about, diversifying economy and supporting market reforms and also ensuring security. Do you think it's smart to cut the developmental budget by 22%? So for me in the, in the field, my role is to use the money that you give us, taxpayer money, as well as I, I possibly can, and I will do that if confirmed. So uh, the African Union is marching down the road of trying to create a more professional peacekeeping force. They're talking about trying to collect $400 million among the member nations of the African Union. I'm very excited about this. They want sort of a regular funding from assessed contributions to the UN. I don't know if that's a good idea or not. But do you think this is a great step in the right direction? Thanks, Senator. I do. I think the instinct to um, self-finance and have regular, predictable, sustainable financing is exactly right. It's one that we can be supportive of. And then how we get there, as you say, we'll need to work From out. From a national security perspective, Africa is a place to keep our eye on. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do, sir. There's a lot of opportunity for terrorists to go there and want to get ahead of, get there before they do. Uh, South Africa, uh, Ms. Marks, you're the only non-career uh, person here. Uh, how did you get the nomination, and why should I vote for you? Mash the button. Thank you for the question, Senator. The day after the election, I called the president to congratulate him and was told I would make an ideal uh, candidate for an ambassador and would I be interested? And I said I was deeply honored and yes, of course, I would be interested. Um, I have started a business from scratch throughout the United States and globally. I've set up all the supply chains for everything. I've done all the negotiations throughout the United States and globally, and I feel this would hold me in good stead in increasing business between the United States and South Africa, if confirmed. Um, I have also had a knowledge of South Africa, born and raised in South Africa. I speak three of the four most widely spoken of the 11 official languages. I have a knowledge of South Africa, and I feel this would hold me in good stead. I've also served on various boards internationally. I've interfaced um, socially and with media and communications, and all of these together, if confirmed, I would utilize to the best of my ability um, in that position. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And again, congratulations to the nominees. Um, Ms. Marks, I want to follow up with you on South Africa. President Trump waded into a controversy about a year ago when he tweeted that he'd instructed Secretary Pompeo to, quote, closely study the South Africa land and farm seizures and expropriations and the large-scale killing of farmers. Uh, that quote was widely condemned. The Anti-Defamation League said it, that, that it was deeply troubling and that it was a white supremacist talking point. Um, you mentioned positively the administration of President Ramaphosa. The land reform, as I understand it, is an effort to deal with the situation, whereas because of a 1913 Native Lands Act, Africans were prohibited from owning land. And so today, in 2019, 80% of the population of the nation is, is, uh, is uh, uh, black South Africans, and they own 4% of the land. Domestic politics are for the country, not the ambassador, to figure out. Yes. But from your understanding of South Africa, do you generally support uh, the uh, efforts to find some equity in land 
the President Ramaphosa's proposals and what might the U.S. do to be helpful in that regard so that it, if it's done, it's done the right way. Senator Kane, you've raised two issues, one uh, with the land. Um, it is a historically fraught issue, a complicated issue in which there are legitimate grievances by the majority. And on the other hand, you have to consider security, econo economy, productivity, not only for South Africans, but for American companies doing business there. That is on the one hand. It's being dealt with in a transparent manner, which uh, the administration approves of. And I think it's important that we engage them with this going forward to the best of our ability. If confirmed, I will put all my efforts in that regard uh, with our policy. And then second of all, with... Uh, no farms have been confiscated at this time. But second of all, with murders and all of that, it is shocking the murders in South Africa. It's unacceptable. Farm murders and other murders. And the new president, Ramaphosa, has said that it's a very, very serious consideration of his to get this under control. Um, we have the program, the facility, Ilia, in um, Botswana, and we have other facilities. I would encourage the police force there to get involved in this in a much more meaningful way. And if confirmed, I will engage, and I would very much appreciate, uh, Senator Kane, if I could engage with you going forward um, on this issue. Excellent. Is it, I don't know the answer to this question. Is it your understanding that murders of farmers are dramatically higher than they were decades ago, dramatically lower, about the same? Um, Senator, any murders of farmers is shocking. Any murders in general are shocking. Absolutely. The ratio goes up, it goes down. Um, it's less than 1% of the total murders of the country, but they're all unacceptable. But, do, but I'm just I'm talking about trends. Is this yes. a trend it's, it's, that you understand is getting worse, getting better, or about the same? The trend has gone down. However, it's not acceptable. Thank you. Let me ask, um, if I could, uh, Ambassador Leonard, a question about Nigeria. In, to, in 2015, the leaders of Boko Haram pledged uh, that they were a unit of ISIS. Talk a little bit about the Boko Haram-ISIS connection. Is that just a claimed affiliation, or is there something more to it than that? Boko Haram, obviously, such a problem in Nigeria and surrounding nations as well. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, in terms of the security threats um, in the north of Nigeria, uh, the, the, two, the two organizations of concern are, of course, Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa. Um, and I think that the latter um, is perhaps the one with uh, the, the more pernicious connections or potential connections. Uh, and if confirmed, um, I would continue to work very hard to help the government of Nigeria uh, to address um, those security threats making sure that they do so in ways that um, you know, respect human rights of citizens, um, that protect civilians, that hold violators of, uh, of people who commit abuses to account. Um, can, can I just interrupt you there and ask mm -hmm. you about that? I think that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. Because some allege that human rights abuses by the Nigerian security forces can be a driver of extremism. So what might the US do in partnership with Nigeria uh, to make sure that the appropriate focus on security includes respect for human rights. Absolutely. Yes, it can become a driver, and uh, which is a reason why it needs needs to be fixed. The way that the, the mission has approached us to date is to keep our security uh, assistance to date in a very defensive posture in the sense of defensive as in uh, providing intelligence, air surveillance, anti-mining, and making sure that all of our security assistance contains a component uh, of human rights compliance and training. Uh, and, you know, there is the obvious uh, incentive for the government of Nigeria who needs to make this problem smaller, not bigger. 
bigger uh, to make sure that their security forces adhere to that. And by the way that we structure our rather than narrowly focused security assistance, we can help bring that along. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Mr. Chair. Why, thank you. Um, thank you, Chairman Graham. Uh, thank you, uh, Ranking Member Kane. Thank you uh, to all of you for your uh, willingness to serve our nation um, and for those of you who have dedicated decades of your lives to careers in foreign service across the continent. Uh, as some of you know, um, I have traveled to 30 countries on the continent. I have visited several of you in uh, posts overseas. I look forward to visiting several of you in posts overseas and time spent in South Africa and in Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania as a young man. Uh, really shaped my life and gave me deep insights into the promise, the potential, and the challenges that face Africa. I'm particularly concerned um, with uh, working in a bipartisan and sustained way for us to promote the most positive aspects of the U.S.-Africa relationship, both in uh, public health, in prosperity and security, and in the promotion of democracy and, free right and, uh, and human rights. I'm going to work from the right to the left, if I might, and try and stay within my time, but I may go a minute or two over, Mr. Chairman, if you will forgive me. Uh, Ms. Beckering, um, it, in USAID, um, one of the, I think, more significant bills of this Congress will be uh, the work that uh, Chairman Graham is leading, which I'm supporting, um, on a bipartisan, bicameral bill called the Global Fragility Act. This would require a coordinated strategy between our Department of Defense, State Department, and USAID, and it would invest in stabilizing the country's most fragile countries uh, that are most at risk uh, of the destabilizing forces of uh, terrorism, extremism, poverty, desertification, and poor governance. Um, can I count on your support for this effort? Can you tell me how you would see this effort playing out, and what, if any, questions or concerns you have uh, about an effort that would seek to better coordinate the currently siloed efforts of DOD, state, and AID in this area? Well, first of all, thank you for your support on that issue, um, and to Senator Graham as well. You know, it's a matter of fact that a majority of the countries right now where USAID has programming are conflict affected. Um, and so this is really not only restricting our development, um, or the success of our development goals, but in many cases it's reversing it. Uh, so for us, it, it's necessary that we work with the interagency, civil society, um, because there's roles for all of us to play in here. Um, increasingly since that nexus between development assistance conflict in humanitarian assistance is becoming blurred. Uh, for us, um, yes, we would support the bill. I think you know, we would say that we just would want to continue to have the flexibility needed to adjust since mm -hmm. the situations on the ground do change so rapidly. And how can we ensure that the new development finance corporation that's the outcome of the Build Act actually gets stood up by October 1st and is as effective <laughs> as it can possibly be uh, you will play a significant role because this is $60 billion worth of new potential private sector investment in doing development and infrastructure right. And again, we want to thank Congress. This is another, uh, the Senate, this is another great example of bipartisan support for a bill. So we are on track uh, to seeing up the new DFC by October 1st. There's still more work to be done. Uh, since the passage of the bill, we have worked very closely with our colleagues in OPEC on the operational aspects of setting up the new DFC, as well as working in the interagency uh, through a policy process, which is being led by the NSC and OMB. Um, our chief concern is that the DFC remain what it is in name, which is a development 
corporation. And so we are working very hard to make sure that we ensure linkages um, to make sure that development remains the first goal. This also dovetails really nicely. As you know, uh, in December, we launched our new private sector engagement strategy at USAID. So these two things timed together are very significant for us as an agency as we carry out our work. It frankly recognizes that 90% of the resource flows around the world are now not from the public sector. Um, and so we need to better be working with the private sector uh, in co-designing and co-financing our initiatives um, and better asking them up front what their interests are and better understanding of where we as a government come in and what specific role we have to play. Thank you. Um, Ms. Marks, if I might, um, you're nominated for literally one of the best jobs in the world, which is U.S. Ambassador to South Africa. And I hope you appreciate uh, as I believe you do from your testimony, the long and deep and significant ties between the United States and South Africa and the ways in which we can and should um, grow together as we seek to address both the legacy of apartheid and the potential um, of a country with a remarkable constitution, a multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-faith uh, nation uh, endowed with tremendous human resources and natural resources. Um, during the reauthorization of AGOA, I worked closely uh, with my friend and colleague, Senator Isaacson, uh, to eliminate long-standing barriers to the export of U.S. poultry to the South African market. Um, today, poultry producers in my home state of Delaware, as well as many other states, um, are now benefiting from a quota uh, of U.S. poultry into South Africa that are excluded from an anti-dumping tariff. Uh, and South Africa is now one of the top 10 export markets for U.S. poultry. Uh, but there are some recent tensions, uh, understandable um, discomfort or unhappiness uh, on the part of South Africans with the steel and aluminum tariffs that were applied by the administration, um, as well as pressure from domestic partners in South Africa, producers. Um, how will you work to sustain this critical market opportunity? I heard your passion for keeping markets open. How will you focus on this one in particular? And what would be your broader priorities for the U.S.-South Africa relationship economically? Senator Coons, thank you for this very important question. Um, I followed your trip recently when you uh, went to the South African Constitution, by the way. Um, it is... The Constitutional Court. The Constitutional yeah. Court, yes. A wonderful visit. Yes. Um, I have been following the poultry exports uh, and your interest and Senator Isaacson. And if confirmed, I will ensure South Africa continues to fulfill this very important quota. And if there are any problems or any rumblings, I will immediately address those if confirmed. Uh, and I'd very much appreciate if I could engage with you going forward and Senator Isaacson on this matter and if possible even come and visit in Delaware um, to, to have an even greater understanding of this if confirmed. Um, in terms of the greater trade, I think we have to, um, if confirmed, look at all the the Prosper Africa, all the different tools that we have within the mission, within South Africa, with the United States, and with South Africa. And um, if once I'm confirmed, if I'm confirmed on the ground, look at all of these tools and see where we can dramatically increase trade and all the different areas, um, whether it's advanced manufacturing, whether it's energy, whether it's services, whether it's a communication technology, all these areas that we in the United States are interested in increasing our trade with South Africa. Um, if confirmed, I would look at that very carefully. Thank you. I think there are huge opportunities for us to strengthen South Africa's economy, its potential, um, both for historically disadvantaged populations and for those who have long experience 
in agriculture and in other sectors. And I think it's a tremendous export opportunity uh, for the entire um, American economy. So I look forward to working with you on this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all very much for being here today and for your willingness to consider taking on these tremendous responsibilities at this challenging time. Um, Ms. Is it Le Pen? Ms. Le Pen, you have considerable experience in Africa, and I'm sure that you know the importance of the United States' role in mediating and being engaged in conflict negotiations. As you are probably aware, in 2017, the President signed into law the Women, Peace, and Security Act, um, and the administration has now unveiled its strategy for putting into, for implementing that law, and the importance, we know from data, the importance of having women at the table when we are negotiating an end to conflict. So, as ambassador, how would you work with the leadership of the African Union to ensure that women are involved in any conflict mediation, and where do you think those efforts could be most effective today as we look at the challenges on the African continent? Thanks so much, Senator. Um, I am familiar with the, the legislation and the strategy um, and some of the history on uh, UNSCR 1325. Um, I think the story in Addis right now has been a pretty good one. There's been good work being done by the AU, including with US support, particularly around the continental results framework, basically holding the regional economic communities and member states accountable for their commitments under WPS. The AU has also created a special envoy. So I think there's there's ways to, there's, there's interest, there's openings, um, and if confirmed, it's an area that I would certainly um, be focused on and looking towards the, the 2020 anniversary as well as hopefully a forcing function to, um, to continue the good work the team has already been doing. And are there particular um, conflict areas or um, countries where you think it's particularly important to um, ensure that the strategy is implemented? Um, I think there's interest in encouraging the AU to engage more uh, in Cameroon. Um, there was discussion about the, the fragility risks, and we're watching that closely. Um, and so I would seek to engage the AU at the Commission and members of the PSC on that issue. Um, thank you. I, I think that's going to be particularly important as we look at the challenges ahead in Africa. Um, my next question is going to be for Ambassador Leonard, because one thing that I have been very concerned about is the impact of the current administration's expanded global gag rule. Um, what we have, the information that we have on Nigeria is that as the result of this expanded global gag rule, one of the organizations has lost millions of dollars for programs to deliver counseling and long-acting reversible contraceptives. They're forced to end a project that engaged close to 2,000 government healthcare providers to be able to provide competent, voluntary balanced counseling. And that program has ended, and the women who were participating have lost access to those services. So if confirmed, Will you work with USAID, with the Nigerian government and civil society to try and lessen the harmful impacts of this policy? And can you tell me how you envision possibly doing that? 
Thank you for that question, Senator. I will tell you I was not aware of the specific uh, specific organization uh, losing funding as, as you have described, although I am, I am obviously familiar with We're happy to share issue. with you our information on that. Thank you. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the lion's share of U.S. government uh, funding, uh, 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 bilateral um, assistance in Nigeria is in the area of health. Um, and clearly, I agree with you entirely that uh, women's health and its various ramifications are a, a, an enormously important part of that. Um, so I would be very happy uh, to, to work hard to be able to address uh, the needs of women in such circumstances. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I should ask each of you who are going to be serving as ambassadors in Africa, if you're confirmed, if you will take a look at these policies as well, because the information we have received, and this is something that I've had an opportunity to ask Administrator Green about in terms of USAID's information, but our information is that it's having a tremendous impact on access to health care in a variety of areas, not just reproductive health, but because of the impact of this new expanded gag rule. It's having impacts in other areas as well. So. Ms. Marks, would you take a look at what the impact of that policy is? And I guess I would ask, Mr. Chairman, if since they're going to be reporting back to you in six months, maybe they could report back to the entire committee on this issue so that we would all have that information. Uh, Senator Shaheen, if confirmed, I do undertake to look into this and report back within six months, and thank you for that question. And Mr. Bell? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, Senator, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. And uh, Ms. Leonard, I would assume that based on your previous response, you would agree with that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I think we have a few more questions. Uh, Senator Gardner's on the way. Uh, Ms. Pickering, I really appreciate what you and uh, Ivanka Trump uh, have been doing, trying to look at laws in Africa in particular, but really throughout the world, but particularly in Africa, so this is what the hearing's about, about laws that deny women the ability to inherit property, to do certain kind of jobs, uh, you know, it's a big impediment, you know, to economic growth of that country and certainly a um, big impediment to women uh, having a stronger voice. Where do you see that going if you get this job? Well, and thank you for your support um, of the Women's Economic Empowerment Initiatives, which I know is shared um, by Senator Sheen and the other members. Uh, so the initiative you're referring to, the Women's Global Development Prosperity Initiative, is something we are very excited about. It was launched in February. It's a whole-of-government approach to women's economic empowerment. We have lofty goals. Uh, we aim to economically enable 50 million women in the developing world by 2025. And... We feel good about our prospects of doing this. This is in line with the work at USAID that we have long focused on, which is recognizing that investing in women and girls, frankly, has a multiplier effect, and it does have a return on their, our investment, no matter in what sector that we're looking at. So we're gonna focus on three things. The first is workforce development. We need to make sure women have the skills and the opportunities necessary to enter the formal labor market. Number two, we need to recognize there's a huge credit gap for women entrepreneurs around, estimates vary, but it's around $300 billion. So we need to connect them to support, to finance, to networks. And third, in an area that I'm really passionate about with my background in democracy, rights, and governance is, as you said, the regulatory legal uh, environments that are restricting women. We also recognize that there's a, a huge role to play here with working with our partners in the civil society as we are working on cultural and social issues as well that may prevent women uh, from realizing their goals. 
Uh, Ms. LePen, uh, you'll be the, um, if confirm, which I'm sure you will be, you'll be the ambassador of the, to the African Union. What I want to know is from you, if you can kind of give us some idea of how prevalent these laws are and take it up with the um, member nations of the African Union that, you know, I'm, it's not our job to run other people's countries, but if I have limited amount of dollars to invest in, I don't want to invest in an environment where half the population really can't succeed. So you can let them know that this subcommittee and the appropriators, which most of us are on the appropriations committee, will be looking long and hard at laws and practices that stifle business opportunities and economic opportunity in general for women. So if you could deliver that message, I'd appreciate it. And with that, you don't ask any questions? Okay, I'm done. All right. You're a nice man. Uh, Senator Coons, Kane, I'm sorry. Um, just uh, quickly, Ms. Beckering, you're uh, involved in a current restructuring effort, as I understand that the Economic Growth, Education, and Environment Bureau that you're nominated to lead is being consolidated in with some other entities to create a new Bureau for Democracy, Development, and Innovation. Could you just report to the committee on the status of that restructuring effort? Yes, that's correct, Senator. Um, so right now, the congressional, um, all holds have been lifted, um, and so we are working now on what we are calling a stand-up package at USAID to put the new bureau into place. As you can imagine, uh, there are a lot of aspects we're looking at, such as staffing, um, budgets, uh, operational policies, et cetera. We are currently in the process of that, and I would be happy to follow back uh, with you and your staff in writing as we continue to progress and meet our benchmarks. I think that is something that the entire committee would be Absolutely. interested in. We would appreciate that. Mr. Bell, your opening comments, you talked about some real positive um, economic and other uh, advances in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, regional issues will intrude, um, and there is instability in the region. Uh, talk to us about uh, is Cote d'Ivoire's strategy for dealing with instability in the Sahel um, and, and Mali, and how are they prepared, and what can we do to be helpful to them? Thank you very much, Senator. Until last August, I was the foreign policy advisor at AFRICOM, and so I have some familiarity with this issue. Just next month, Cote d'Ivoire is going to something like triple its contribution to the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali from a company to a battalion. And tragically, MINUSMA has become the deadliest UN peacekeeping mission in the world. So that is a significant contribution. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, the more the U.S. military is able to work with these African partner militaries, uh, the better it is for the entire country because of the professionalism that our people bring to that. In every training we do, we always emphasize the importance of protecting the civilian population, respecting human rights. These are insurgencies, and rule number one of counterinsurgency is it has to be you and the population against the enemy. So I hope that addresses your question, sir. I think some of the best investments that we make in my other committee, the Armed Services Committee, is the work that we do in tandem with partners around the world, that we are still such a partner of choice for nations in Africa and elsewhere on training, including human rights training, is something that as a portion of the Pentagon's budget is just a fraction of a fingernail, but it actually 
uh, produces real value, and your experience in AFRICOM, I think, will be very valuable in that. Ms. Le Pen, uh, in the African Union, my understanding is that the uh, current chair or incoming chair is uh, President al-Sisi uh, of Egypt, and uh, there are a number of issues that the African Union are dealing with on Egypt's borders, Libya and Sudan, and in some of those issues, Egypt's position and the U.S. position isn't quite aligned. Could you share with us what you would predict or project about uh, President al-Sisi's leadership, chairmanship of the African Union? Thanks, Senator. Um, yes, he is the, the current chair of the African Union. Um, if confirmed, my approach would be, I would say, similar at the AU to effectively to a bilateral mission, trying to move our agenda where and how we can through relationships, um, through getting a sense of who's who, who are our partners, where can we where can we move the needle? So if confirmed, I, I would look seriously at those particular policy issues and see how we can move African Union members along with us as well as others at the Commission. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Graham. Let me ask just a follow-up question for each, if I might. Um, Ms. Le Pen, thank you uh, again for your excellent support to my uh, visit to South Africa. Um, and your service as Chargé in Pretoria, and I'm encouraged that you're going on to what I think is, as I think uh, Ambassador Leonard will tell you, uh, a wonderful and a challenging post. I'd be interested in hearing from both Ambassador Leonard as you depart the AU and you as you um, head there. Um, I think, as uh, Chairman Graham mentioned, that um, the AU and the UN should deepen our collaboration. I think our engagement in supporting and funding and um, assisting AU-led peacekeeping efforts is a great way to facilitate African-led solutions to African security challenges. Um, how would you plan to use your role, if confirmed as our ambassador to the African Union, to support peacekeeping operations? Um, and to you uh, and to Ambassador Leonard, um, do you think the United States should provide increased financial support for the AU peace support operations through the UN budget? And do you think we have made enough progress in providing accountability around a number of very troubling incidents of misbehavior uh, by peacekeepers, uh, criminal and abusive and inappropriate behavior by peacekeepers um, of a variety of nations, uh, both Western, African, uh, and otherwise. Ms. Le Pen, if I might first. Thank you, Senator. Um, on the peacekeeping support, I think we're doing a lot of good work, particularly um, around training, around the capacity building that a number have have spoke to already, and particularly with a focus on human rights, which is a U.S. value. It's something that we bring. Um, I think we've done a lot of good work on that, and the the results are positive, right? We're seeing two, three things, I would say, in the peacekeeping space from the African Union. We're seeing the Amazon mission in Somalia, political support for non-AU, non-UN missions in the Sahel, and then also um, an identification of standards, of norms, of institutions that are required. And we are, we are a crucial partner in all those efforts. On your question about accountability, I think we, we need to hold firm. We need to be very, very strong on this issue. Um, and, and that is additionally a reflection of our values. But it's also what peacekeepers need to do to keep populations safe. Right. And so that, I think, will also have to be considered as, as there are conversations around the funding, conversations that necessarily will come back here requiring congressional consent. Thank you, Ambassador Leonard, if you would. 
Um, thank you for that question. It's providing me the opportunity to feel, I don't know, valedictory or something. But um, um, I think that part of the storyline of my time uh, in the last three years at the AU was their efforts, their successful efforts, uh, to build a much closer working relationship with the UN. Um, I think the, uh, the Secretary General and the Chairperson of the Commission work very well together. Um, and that is a, a very positive uh, trend for thinking about the way that the world addresses the challenges that face us. Um, the, the, issue of accountability is huge. Uh, during the various uh, sort of UN operation uh, renewals that have come up, we've worked very hard, for example, like in a Unibid, to um, very have a lot of granularity in the discussion about what it is that we mean uh, by the, 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 the performance in indicators uh, to find things that are uh, achievable. Um, I think that the AU owes, uh, 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 in terms of the current conversation going on about how we might change or what other approaches might be taken to providing uh, uh, money for AU-led peace port operations uh, is has been working hard to come up with the answers to the question, how have they uh, further institutionalized uh, those those performance standards? Um, I think that there's a, 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 an interesting debate to be had about what is the most productive way uh, in which to fund. Is it, uh, you know, uh, in this, is it uh, through our bilateral efforts or is there a case to be made uh, for through the UN? And in any of those circumstances, and, and particularly for the UN, there's also the question of financial accountability of how those funds are used. That's a question that is posed by us and other UN members. It is also a question being posed uh, by AU member states as they are being asked to contribute more. Um, so I think it's a conversation that is going in a positive direction um, and it's our sort of a watch this space to see how it ends, but probably in a, in a near term. Mm. Well, thank you, um, Ambassador. You've um, represented us well in Audis and I think the AU is a particularly important mission and relationship, and um, if confirmed, you go to Abuja, which is in some ways an equally, if not more, um, challenging and important post, a very complex nation, Nigeria, with huge potential. Um, if confirmed, how will you ensure that Nigeria continues on the path towards democracy and use the tools um, that you'll have available to you to ensure that we confront uh, together what I think is the serious security challenge of ISIS West Africa? Um, and promote transparency and human rights compliance by the Nigerian security forces. Thank you for those very seminal questions. I think on the question of promoting democracy, I think the best thing that uh, we have going for us in our relationship with Nigeria on the issue of democracy is the overwhelming support of Nigerians towards that. In, in, you know, in sort of Afrobarometer polling, uh, there's a, a, a great uh, attachment uh, to the idea of you know, elections matter, res uh, results should be respected. Um, this is something that Nigerian citizens want. It's, it's been an interesting, before, before I went to Mali, I was the director for West African Affairs, and um, I think the 2000 elections uh, were the first time that, you know, although not anywhere near as good as the 2015, was the first time that things like parallel vote counts, is when Ambassador McCulley was there, uh, were uh, were being used and, and having measures to sort of track how that was going. I think people were all very satisfied with what happened in 2015, um, and in 2019, you know, the the issues of delay and some logistics problems and some um, intimidation factors disappointed a lot. Lot of people. Um, I, I sometimes wonder if that disappointment is 
you know, it's not as if nothing better happened between 2015, uh, 2015 and 2019. There were a lot of uh, process issues that were improved, automaticity in, uh, in uh, registering new voters. And I sometimes wonder if the disappointment was absolute or just that one had gotten used to seeing a much increased trajectory across the elections and maybe we didn't quite go there. Uh, but, you know, as people in this room know, you know, elections every four years happen very quickly. So there's an awful lot of work to be done uh, to help that as we, as we look towards uh, 2023. And the other part of your question was on peace and security, yes. And as I mentioned before, uh, the previously, uh, our, our, I think there is an incentivizing factor in the idea of focusing quite narrowly now on the uh, capabilities that we can provide that make the, encourage the Nigerian military and security services uh, towards a better approach to their duties um, and, and, and making sure that we are not giving any assistance that can aid and abet, abet some of the more pernicious behaviors as a way to, to move it forward in a positive direction. Uh, and so I think that, you know, obviously one does continue, need to continue to engage with them because the security challenges that, such as ISIS West Africa are significant, not going to go away and cannot be ignored. Uh, but I think that we've, we've come on a good construct for moving forward with them, both in terms of addressing that challenge and in terms of, of reforming their, the way they do business. Thank you. I think the Global Fragility Act approach that uh, Chairman Graham and I are working on will help significantly with stabilizing um, northern Cote d'Ivoire, northern Nigeria, and some of the regional issues. Um, Mr. Bell, I'll talk to you afterwards, if I can, about uh, the cocoa industry and child labor. I know I'm well over my time and I'm delaying my colleagues, but I'm quite concerned about the ways in which uh, the industry has missed a number of key deadlines, and I think there continue to be concerns about how we work together um, to assure that um, children are not uh, mistreated in labor in the cocoa industry. We had a wonderful meeting with the First Lady um, of Cote d'Ivoire about this issue, and I'm optimistic it's possible, but we need engagement. Um, and I think um, South Africa is a country of enormous potential. I'm encouraged, Ms. Marks, to hear you recognize it correctly as a model um, that many other countries can learn from. Um, of reconciliation uh, after periods of great tension and difficulty. And I look forward to meeting with you um, before we get to a vote. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Senator Sheen. Thank you. Ms. Beckering, a year or so ago, along with a number of other women senators, I had a chance to meet with two young women who had been kidnapped by Boko Haram. Uh, they were both from Nigeria. And they had tragic stories to tell about seeing family members murdered in front of them, um, being raped, um, being taken away, being kidnapped and held in captivity for um, several years. And I asked them at the end of their story what they would like us to tell the people of this country and the government about what we should do to respond to that kind of situation and to help young women in their situation. And they were both very clear. They said, education is the most important thing you can do to help us. So I know that that's part of your portfolio in your new position, if you're confirmed. So can you talk about how important education is for girls and young women in empowering them and ensuring economic opportunities for them? 
Well, thank you, Senator Shaheen, and, and for meeting and being a voice um, for, for those young women. This is an area of critical importance. 132 million girls around the world are out of school. When we look at areas of conflict and crisis, they are 90% more likely to be out of school than boys. So this is really, it, it's a pervasive issue for us. We know education is foundational to all of our development goals. And so when we're looking at these staggering statistics, the first thing we're doing is asking ourselves, what are the barriers that are keeping girls from going to school? We need to first assess what those barriers are. And those barriers are many, as I'm sure you know, as is the whole field of women's empowerment. We're looking at, first of all, can girls go to school safely? Is there a threat of gender-based violence? Do they have um, adequate wash, water, sanitation, hygiene facilities that allow them to go? And then thirdly, and very importantly, we're looking at the cultural aspects, which might say, you know, a girl is not as important as a boy to go to school. Or our family doesn't have the many to send both of them. So in all of our programming, we do these analyses to look at what are the various factors that are keeping girls from being able to go to school, and then working with our partners to design the correct interventions to address those barriers. Um, if, if confirmed, this is an area I, I confirm to you right now that I will give utmost importance, and I look forward to working with you and your staff very closely on this issue. So one of the things that I was surprised at is looking at the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report and seeing that Pakistan has come in second to last on that report, um, that USAID's own Journey to Self-Reliance Country Roadmap shows Pakistan lagging behind the world on gender equality. Can you speak to why it's, it may be worse in Pakistan than some other countries and what specifically we can do there to support uh, more education and closing that gap between girls and boys? So the gender gap report is something that we also um, look at, and it looks at four areas, as you know. So it's political uh, participation and representation, it's, uh, it's health, uh, it's uh, education, and it's economic. Um, so for Pakistan, I will be honest, I'm not quite familiar with why they're ranking so low. Is it on education specifically, or is it an average of the four pillars? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. I can't tell that from what I have in in my briefing here, but um, I, it said roughly 50% of women and girls over the age of 10 have never attended school, and 96% drop out by grade 12. So, so let's talk about education, um, and that makes sense. One of the areas that we have been increasingly concerned about, especially in Pakistan and other areas where we've seen prolonged um, conflict is, first of all, simply that there was such a huge destruction of schools. And in Pakistan, as you know, uh, especially in the regions, um, if there were not girls-only schools, in a lot of areas also, there were not schools that were safe or of easy access to girls, this was one of our big prog uh, problems. So we have invested significant funding in Pakistan. While I... Um, in not the lead on those issues, since our mission takes the lead on those issues, I do know that we have offered them support at how to, one, re-enroll girls in schools, especially in areas where they may have for a time been prohibited from going to schools. Uh, we're also looking, of course, always at the economic opportunities since there's such a linkage there. Um, but I would be happy to talk to my colleagues uh, in the Regional Missions uh, and Geographic uh, Bureau and come back to you with some more specifics. Um I think that would be helpful. Sure. Do we think that the growth of madrasas and um, 
having so many children in madrasas to go to school as opposed to in other um, schools is part of what's contributing to this, since girls would not be included there? That could very well be a factor. Um, I'm not sure of the particular, and I would rather be well-informed with my answer. So let me commit to looking into that and coming back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Anything else? Thank you all very much. Uh, you acquitted yourselves well. Congratulations to you and your family. We will keep the record open for questions to July the 18th. Uh, hearings adjourned.